Hi guys, I'm Nir Felder and this is Coffee Talk. Hello and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian and we have another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week we're joined by Nir Felder. Nir is an alum who's become one of the most highly sought after jazz guitarists in New York. He's performed with an incredible list of musicians, folks like Jack DeJanet, Erica Badu, Brad Meldow, Terry Lynn Carrington, Anderson Pock, and many others. And he's performed on Austin City Limits, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Good Morning America, and the U.S. Open. His 2010 album, Golden Age, was hailed as a great record by Downbeat Magazine. It was called Lyrical and Lofty by the New York Times and a melodic triumph by the New York City Jazz Record. Keep an eye out as he does have another album coming out soon. He talks about his time at Berkeley and how to take the leap into the professional world as a freelance guitarist. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Nir Felder. Hi, everyone. I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department at Berkeley College of Music, and welcome to another Coffee Talk. We're here, as usual, with Cheryl Bailey, assistant chair of guitar. Hey, Cheryl. Hey, everybody. And Ian Steed, our senior coordinator. Hey, Ian. Hey, good morning. And our guest today is our alum and great jazz guitar player and teacher, Nir Felder. Hey, Nir. Hey, Kim. Great to see you. It's really good to see you. Um, thank you for coming and uh, and hanging with us today. Um, so, Nir, just for context, tell everybody what year you graduated in, so they can put it together a little bit. Totally. I was at Berkeley from 2001 to 2005. Seems like yesterday, but... <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I always think of you um, from way back from National Guitar Workshop. So... Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about that a little bit, too, because I think you've had this experience that a lot of people who are listening hope they have, which is so many of the people you met when you were young who were your teachers are now your colleagues. So awesome. this is going to be a lot of fun to talk about. it. Cheryl was at NGW, too. We go all the way back to NGW as well. Yeah, this is going to be fun. Um, so first and most importantly, um, for Coffee Talk in the beginning is how do you take your coffee? Do you drink coffee? Yeah, I drink coffee. Um, so if I make it at home, sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm lazy and I just drink it black or with a splash of milk. Uh, but I also have a nice espresso machine. So sometimes I'll make a cortado. And then if I really want to treat myself, I'll make a cortado with an extra double shot. So a quad cortado is a go-to. It's a strong start to a day. That's, I like that. That's advanced. I like that you have levels. You can <laughs> so adapt. Like Getting like, ready to play some double time. <laughs> and it's not surprising that you can adapt to whatever the day brings, you know, like you got, you've got it together. It's a, it's a treat. It's a treat. I allow myself a, a quad cortado and like, but if you do too many of those, that's just what it takes to get to zero. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's not like it really gets you anywhere higher than just normal. Um, so you don't want to do it too much, which I often do, but, uh, <laughs> But yeah, I love a quad cortado. Do the beans matter? 
to you? Yeah. The rose, yeah. the beans, yeah. I think the, the beans matter, but but I think they matter a lot, but also like how you, if, if you're using an espresso machine, how you pull the shot. If you pull it too long, it'll get bitter. Um, if you kind of, it'll be more caffeinated, but it'll be bitter. Um, so, and some people like that. Some people like the acidity and bitterness, um, but I, I don't, I like the more Italian smooth style. Nice. We don't know what this all means, Nir. Like we've, we've found a lot of parallels in the way that people think, talk about their coffee to the way they talk about their playing. Not sure what it all means, but we're learning a lot about both guitar and coffee. So that's pretty good. I feel like amongst my, my peer group, you know, there's like, you know, people that go into the gear world. They want to talk about gear all the time. Mm -hmm. And other people that aren't as interested in gear, it becomes wine, coffee, food, because you got to nerd out about something. That's true. That is a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so I think it'd be fun to talk for a second about how Cheryl and I met you when you were so young at National Guitar Workshop. And I really, I remember you from there. Like, I remember how serious you were. I remember just being with the group of faculty and hanging out with you. And um, I just remember you around asking a lot of questions, but in a very cool way. And, um, and I'm wondering, like, what was your impression of that time? Because I think you stood out to us quite a bit. Like, you know, there are some students that you remember by name and it's mostly because like, there's like sort of this really enthusiastic and serious interest for a young person that's kind of uncommon. And I think you had that, but you had it in this way that was like very relaxed and not, um, it wasn't off-putting in any way. And, um, I, what was your impression of that time? Like, what do you remember from that? I'm laughing because I'm, I'm so glad to hear that I wasn't annoying about it. <laughs> no, you weren't annoying. You guys were like my life source, my energy source, because where I grew up, I didn't really have access to a teacher for most of my playing career up to, I don't, I wouldn't call it a career, but like my journey through music. Once I started playing, I had this guy that was like, kind of a college dropout that would like charge my folks in groups of three and then like maybe show up to one and like that's that's who was around you know I didn't grow up too far from New York City but it was far enough that like to get down to the city for a lesson would have been tough so um I went really long stretches without a teacher but then over the summer I would go to the National Guitar Workshop for a week or two weeks or more and I'd get to hang out with you guys and it was just like um it was like really kind of all my stuff for the year other than what I was getting from like a guitar magazine or a book if I you know for for the students watching this it, it wasn't like it is now where there's you know so much content on the internet you know Instagram or just lessons online or whatever none of that existed so unless you could find like a physical magazine or a physical book or a teacher and you couldn't order those online either because there wasn't really so much of an online um you know, just, you were just left to your own devices. So over the summer, I would get to come hang with you guys. And it was, it was everything to me. So one thing that strikes me about that is then what people say that, oh, I come and I get enough for a year, but then that means that you have to go home and you have to organize how you're working on things at a really young age. So can you talk about that for a minute? Like how you went about that at when you were really young and that must have set you up to be super prepared as you got older. 
man, I've never talked about this with anybody or even like really gone too deep into it, but a hundred percent. So do you guys remember Wayne Riker? Yeah. You remember Wayne? Mm-hmm. I would love to know what, what he's, what he's up to, but um, he said one thing that kept me busy and shaped everything basically, because I was a blues player, you know, and I, I knew my pentatonic scale positions and either he said it or it was in his book that like you know you bought at the workshop but he was like you really have to know what notes you're playing you know if you play in an, 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 a c on an a minor pentatonic you want to know that it's a c and then it's the flat third and up to that point it was just like a fingering and a shape to me and i was kind of like oh and i think that kind of laid the groundwork for everything because i i tried to learn you know i took that one piece of information I had to make that last a year, which it it's lasted much more than that. But, you know, trying to learn my guitar and know that every time I play a C, it's the third of A flat or it's the nine of B flat or it's the sharp 11 of G flat. And like I can see it and feel it and hear it and know it in an instant kind of way. Like if you woke me up at like four in the morning and we're like, what note is this? I'd be like, oh, that's a G, you know. Um, and for a lot of people playing guitar, it's just like they put their fingers down on frets and they know shapes, but they don't necessarily know that the way a piano player would or a horn player or most other instruments would. And learning that really, when I, when I shifted and started playing jazz, it just made it possible for me. Because instead of trying to memorize a billion shapes, you know, I could just play one note and know what it was and know how it connected and know how to get to a note that worked on the next chord. So did you end up taking that really broad thing and then find practical applications. You had to find practical applications to fill a day of practicing. You know, like that, that's a lot as a young person, you had to sort of map it out, right. And start to apply it. I did. Yeah, I I did, but I definitely mapped it out and I took it, you know, one of the pros of like limited information, limited content coming at you is you take everything you can get and you, you find all the applications and implications and you make it your own. And when you run out of stuff to do with that, you get creative. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was a pro. Now, I don't know what I would do if I was a young student and like the content was just everywhere at all. There's so much, uh, how do you parse through it all and, and make it into a, a complete knowledge and a, and a voice and a style of your own. Um, I'm sure there, I'm sure there's like a certain specific, you know, as great as it is, I'm sure it's challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it was, it was, you know, I, I made what I learned in those weeks last a year for sure. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky to have some great teachers at the workshop, you guys, and, and Matt Smith stands out, mm-hmm. you know, he yeah. would come with like a stack of handouts like this big and like, there might just be like one chord written on one or like one thing, but it was like, okay, I'm going to work on this sheet today. Yeah, that's great. Um, so if you fast forward to when you came to Berkeley as a student, what stands out to you in your early time at Berkeley? Like what, what do you remember? Uh, That I really knew nothing. I showed up like, (laughs) I showed up maybe knowing, knowing more than I could actually play. But I remember like I had one of my first ensembles with Joanne Brackeen, 9am ensemble. Um, Some, you know, Christian Scott was in it. If you guys know Christian Scott, you know, someone who's went on to a great career and we had this class at 9 a.m. 
And Joanna was like, okay, you know, let's just do softly. One, two, one. And I was like, what? I don't know what any of that means. Um, and I had to learn very fast. And I wanted to learn. I mean, I was intimidated. I was scared. But I was like, you know what? I'm going to figure this out. After like the initial shock wore off, I was like, I'm going to figure this out. And I just spent a lot of time. Those first two years, mm -hmm. I didn't really have much of a life. I don't say that as like a, a positive necessarily but that's what it took for me to figure it out and get to the point where where people were like oh i thought you couldn't play but actually maybe you're okay <laughs> <laughs> i love that the common thread already is that you get into a situation and in some ways you're overwhelmed or there's a an issue you have and then you're like okay this is what i have and now now i'm gonna work as hard as i can to work it out and then you're finding a solution and I'm wondering if along the way, like past those early days in your Berkeley time, if there were guitar teachers that stood out to you or like specific things they said or lessons that you kind of feel like you, you go back to. And I'm sure there's a lot of them, but maybe if one or two hop into your mind, um, what, what do you think they'd be? I got one right away. Um, probably the, the best guitar teacher I've ever had is David Tronzo. Mm -hmm. Um, just such a special, smart, compassionate, unique, like all the superlatives to Dave, because um, he was just such a great friend and ally and inspiration and mentor and teacher when I was at Berkeley. And uh, one thing he told me once stood out and helped right away. And, um, you know, I, I tell my students, it, I pass it on. Um, but he told me, he said, you know, I don't know what made him think to say this, but he kind of pulled me aside. He's like, you know, if you're ever in like a situation where the rhythm is like kind of a bit past your capabilities or the harmonies over your head, or you're not sure about, you know, how you fit in with the band, or you kind of just feel like you're in over your head, just go for it anyway. <laughs> yeah. And I did, and I put it to use right away. I had like a recital or something and there was they're playing a song in 13 or 7 or something and I think my instinct would be to just close off and I can't do this this is just too much for me but I kind of went for it mm -hmm. you know on his advice mm -hmm. and I was like oh like it was actually came out good mm -hmm. and now I can kind of feel it and before I couldn't so that was that was really cool um he had a way of like putting things together in, in a way that you could like wow, what an important piece of information to pass on. That's what I'm going to school for, to get that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, it strikes me that um, just from my experience of knowing you as a really young student, that, that quality that you had where you were had really willing to learn and you're just kind of like, I'm going to be here with you guys and soak everything up, okay? And we're all like, yeah, okay, you're that's cool. Um, how do you, when you were that person, I'm sure when you, when you walked in a few years later to David Tronzo's office as your teacher. And then the way you describe it now, looking back all these years later, you're like, yeah, you know, we really connected, you know, and I feel like he was a support and he was a friend. How did you feel like that relationship developed over time? You know, like, do you remember it in stages? Do you remember it in like working on specific things and then getting deeper? Or do you remember it as like, um, like really intense lessons or I'm asking you because I know that a lot of people who are listening are in the early stages of the relationships with their teachers. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of wondering like, 
how does a relationship develop over time with a student and a teacher and, and become like something like that grows? And from your perspective, do you have a sense of how that felt to you? That's such a great question, you know, because I, I teach a lot myself, right? And like mm -hmm. as a teacher, that's what I want. I want to grow that bond with my students so I can help them. That's what I'm, that's what I'm there to do, right? Um, and I think what really helped with, especially with David, right? Because he was new at the school at the time, you know, he was his first semester, but I knew who he was, you know, like I had maybe even seen a gig or, you know, he was on the New York scene and, you know, I was interested in that thing and I, you know, I probably had a, some records of his. So I sought him out, um, knowing his music, knowing his stuff. Um, and I had questions, you know, so I didn't just kind of arrive and say, okay, teach me, you know, it was more like, whoa, it's so cool to meet you. I love, I love your thing. How do you do that? Um, whoa, that's so cool. You know? Uh, and I think as a teacher, when someone, you know, is clearly interested, um, they're curious, they ask questions. I feel like that's kind of the best, best of, of best scenario for both teacher and student. Right. Cause the teacher knows what you're interested in, mm -hmm. you know, and they know that it's, has something to do with what you are able to do. You know, not everybody can do everything, obviously, so that you can help them with, with their, you know, with their issues. So as a student, you know, like you're saying, um, and, and with my students, I, I feel like the ones that are excited and come to, to class with questions and, and stuff like that, I'm, it's easier for me to help them because I know what they need. I know what they want. I know that they're excited. Uh, whereas some people it's like, it's hard to, hard to read. Is it, are you, are you not interested? Are you, is it over your head? You know, do you want to know more, but you have a question and are you afraid to ask it? So I would say, you know, ask questions. Hmm. That's really good. Um, and then I guess like in this trajectory, my last question is, so you prepare as much as you can, you learn as much as you can at Berkeley, and then you go on to the next big surprise of adaptation, which is when you kind of enter into like your professional life outside of school. And, um, and obviously like many people who are knowing this have heard, um, Ian talk a little bit in the beginning about like your career and your records and what you're doing, you're doing a tremendous amount. Um, but what did you feel like when you left Berkeley, what were the things you felt like, okay, like this prepared me and what were the things you felt like, whoa, okay, um, here are things I have to adapt again to. Like, are there moments that stick out, I guess? There, there are so many, like, I'll give you the, 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 the pros and, and the cons. Um, but I, I'll, I'll start with a, a shout out to another wonderful teacher of mine from the Berkeley days, Alain Millet, because he was kind of, you know, when I graduated from Berkeley, um, there wasn't like a set path that any of my peer group was taking. Some people were moving home. Some people were moving to LA. Some people were moving to Nashville. Many people were moving to New York. Many people were staying in Boston. So for me, I was like, well, what do I do? Um, and I thought, you know, I'm not good enough to go to New York. I'll just, I'll stay in Boston for X amount of years and I'll practice. And so Alan asked me one day, what are you going to do? And I told him, I was like, you know, I'm going to stay for a year or two and I'm just going to practice. And he was like, what? I was like, I'm just going to practice. He's like, what do you think you're going to achieve? I was like, well, I'm just going to get better. And I just liked the way he put it. He's like, you think you're going to get good enough to the point that when you go to New York, everyone's going to be like, oh, wow. He's like, no, that's not going to happen. So you're going to go there 
right after you graduate, you're going to get your butt kicked and you're going to get better. That's how you're going to do it. And I was like, no, I think I'm just going to stay here and practice. And he was like, you're not. He was really, really insistent. He's like, don't do that. Really, don't do that. And uh, he really pushed me to move. And it was great for me. It was 100% the right choice that um, I hope I would have made on my own, but I'm not sure I would have. You know, he said, he didn't say you're ready. He said, you're not ready, but you're going to do it anyway. Um, and that was really good advice. That's great. Um, Cheryl, what's on your mind right now? Well, that was great advice because you only get really good at things that you do and immerse yourself in things that you're actually doing and with people that are better than you, right? But that is a scary thing to put yourself in that situation. So I'm glad you got that advice and you had the courage to know that was the right thing to do. And I was thinking about what you were saying about asking questions because there is sometimes, especially in a class or something, you know, someone might be afraid to ask a question, like that's a stupid question or, and, um, you know, I think what you're saying is so true about asking questions. And also I always remind students that when you ask a teacher a question, you're actually helping the teacher teach you better because then, you know, oh, this person didn't get that one, you know, when I was trying to explain it before or, uh, but you're so, and then you're helping them, but you're also probably helping three other people in the class that also missed that and were afraid to ask the question. So, you know, I always just say to folks is, you know, don't be afraid to ask that because you're actually really helping everybody <laughs> and, you know, yourself, or also thinking about when you are in school for this period of your life, or even when you're out there playing too, if you're playing, um, you know, to ask someone else in the band or the band leader a question like, oh, you know, what, what's going on here? Um, you know, that's an opportunity. And, you, and, and it, you know, if you think about, well, I wish when I was at Berkeley, I'd asked that question. You know what I mean? Like you're only, you're only in that moment in time then. So um, to do that and jump in and ask that question is the best thing you can do. <laughs> but obviously you had a lot of, you know, that you had that courage to move to New York and, and you always had the courage to ask questions. So I think that's, that's really how you got where you are or, and where you're going, you know? Yeah. I think Cheryl, I mean, I think that, um, you know, questions is a form of, you know, just one example of communicating. Right. And what we do as musicians is we communicate with the other players, with the audience. Right. So a certain amount of like comfort with, I don't know the answer to this. Let me ask, let's talk about it. It's just like a healthy kind of like stuff that happens away from your instrument, but that really ties into what we do. Um, so were there questions that I had wished I'd asked? Yes, because like this ties into um, what Kim asked earlier, like there were certain things that I just truly did not know how to do that were like no brainers in a way. Like I moved to New York, not knowing how to follow a conductor, not knowing how to work a PA system. And like those first misses were very embarrassing. You know what I mean? Um, when it was like, you know, I'm at Radio City and the conductor's like, and I'm like, what? He's like two and a half beats ahead. I was like, oh, that's how it works. 
you know? Um, so not knowing that maybe I would have had to ask, you know, no one taught it to me, but maybe I should have asked, right? So, um, I mean, it's a, Berkeley is a very different place than it was. Um, I think the academia is very different than it was. Um, and I think of all schools, Berkeley's in a really good position to teach people practical things like that. Um, because, you know, there's only so much blackboard teaching that's maybe pertinent about scales and modes. And, you know, um, we also need to know how to work a PA system or follow a conductor or little things like that, or how to get your guitar on an airplane or, you know what I mean? Um, so I got some of those and some I probably should have asked more questions. So along those lines, um, how did you do, how did you approach going to a new city like New York? You've just referenced a couple of things that were hard moments, but yeah. how did you apply your general strategy that you've kind of obviously had at different stages to, okay, I'm in a new city and I really want to do this professionally. Like what were some things you did to start to establish yourself? That's a great question. Um, I don't know if my like my experience would be a blueprint at all because I was very lucky like early on um, I'd only been in New York for maybe a week and I already had like a gig at Smalls um, because I had you know met Joe Lovano at Berkeley and he had put me on a couple of things and I met Francisco Mela through him and then Mela put me on an album and some gigs and then you know you meet one person then you meet four people from them and then so I met a lot of people really fast but um you know, in terms of like what we've been talking about, like asking, I would ask people to play. Like I would go to someone's gig and, and I would introduce myself and say, hey, do you have any time to play? If I, if you know, within reason, I wouldn't go up to, you know, people that were obviously not interested or available to play with me and ask them to play, but people that were my age and a little bit older and, you know, were had been in New York a little bit longer, I'd say, hey, I'm new in town. Um, you know, maybe we had a mutual friend, would you be down to play sometime? And and we'd often get together and play because one thing I learned about New York, um, I don't know if it's a unique thing to this city, but like people are here to play music. Like they're excited to play music and um, they're very open to, to meeting new people and playing. I, I was shocked, you know, cause coming from an academic vibe where people are so busy with school and, you know, I don't know that they have, different interests. When I moved to the city, I was amazed at how excited people were to get together with someone that they didn't even necessarily know. They didn't need to like vet me or anything. They weren't like, well, what are your ratings? They were just like, yeah, let's play. And I was like, wow, this is great. <laughs> um, That's great. Um, did the financial part scare you? Did it scare you to move to a city like New York and, and not have you know, you didn't have gigs yet. And how did you work that out? Like, especially, and obviously it's something like we all work out over time, but I think initially it's scary to move to a new place um, like that. And how did you deal with that? I mean, I wouldn't have had gigs in Boston either. You know, like I was just, you know, wherever I was going to be, I was going to barely get by for a little while. But um, like most young people, like, you know, I found a cheap apartment and I didn't have a, didn't have to like, you know, make uh, an enormous amount of money to pay my rent so that helped a lot and you know i knew a few you know one of the first people that passed me some gigs was amanda monaco 
you know, when I first moved to New York, she got me a few students, she got me a few gigs. She was so kind and so helpful because um, she knew I was new. And if she couldn't do something, she thought, well, I'm sure Neil will do it. He's not doing anything, um, which was true. Uh, so that was great, like having, you know, helpful people. And, and I think, you know, for people who are considering the move, like something that I, I talk about with my students sometimes is like, we've reached a point where like a lot of people can play very, very well. Right. So why would someone trust you with their gig if you play very well, but you're not necessarily like responsible. Right. So we talk a lot about professionalism and like showing up on time and, you know, being kind and learning the music and printing the charts and having the music memorized if possible. And just kind of these like, you know, to do's of professionalism. And I think one of the reasons why Amanda, who was older than me and more experienced, uh, why she felt comfortable calling me for these things is she knew that I would show up and show up on time and do a good job. So she wasn't stressed about someone calling her and saying, you know, the guy you called never showed up or he was half an hour late or, you know, he didn't bring an amp or, you know, some things that are just all too common amongst, you know, some of my students, you know, and I, I really, and some of them are great players. And I'm like, you're too good for this. It's just not going to work out. You're so good, but it's not going to work out unless you kind of tighten up. My, and, and a lot of times they just don't know They're like, oh, I'm supposed to, I have to be on time. Oh, okay. And then they can do it. You know, Amanda Monaco, um, for everyone who's listening, is a professor at Berkeley as well and also taught at National Guitar Workshop. And one of the reasons I'm smiling over here is because um, whenever your name would come up, like in my later life, right? Someone would say, oh, near Felder. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know him. He's great. And then sometimes I think about it and I'm like, you know, the last time I saw near Felder, he was probably like 16 years old or 17 years old or something, right? But the thing is, is when I said that, what I meant was, you had that quality about you where you were like present and you were engaged and you were on it and you were fun to be with and you're easy to work with. And, um, I remember like, you know, you're saying like, Oh, wow, I'm glad to hear like you have good memories of me. And, and sometimes I think like, I think we pushed you into some situations. I think I remember like pushing you on stage into like stressful situations. Like, Who can play with John Schofield? Oh, near Felder, like throw him up there, you know? And then like later I thought, Oh, that could have been tough. But, um, you you were like that's what it means is what i'm trying to say is to build a reputation and to build relationships because people can rely on you you know and that's what amanda saw for by the time you got to new york 10 years right because mm -hmm. she saw you all through berkeley she saw you all through those early years and it was like yeah and then you know obviously people who recommend you for gigs also heard you but it as you're saying it's the whole thing you know, and a person who has these personal qualities of professionalism, also, we sort of guess that if you're playing at a high level, you're also applying that kind of interest and care to your playing. I think that's fair to say. I have, I have a quick, you know, professional anecdote, if that's of interest. Please, yeah. Um, I was, I just started playing with this new artist who was doing really, really well in the pop kind of world and like starting to blow up and do late night TV shows. And, but it was kind of coming in piece by piece because no one really knew where it was going next. We'd done like Colbert and the shows, but the tour was just coming together. And in the meantime, um, one of my, you know, heroes and, and person I, I feel very lucky to play with, Will Lee had asked me to go to Japan with him for a week. 
And I said, yes, of course. I was thrilled. And they had bought the flights. And it was a, it was a good gig. And they had bought us business class tickets, which doesn't always happen to Japan. And just as that kind of happened, the artist who I was working with said, okay, tour's on. We're going to re rehearse for two weeks. And then we're, we hit the road for six months, right? And the two-week rehearsal, one week of that, I was supposed to be in Japan with Will, right? And there's like, you know, paying back business class flights to Japan. It's just like, I can't, even if I had wanted to get out of it, I can't, you know, it's, it's a great gig. I don't want to get out of it, but just like, how do I make this all work? Um, so I, you know, I was honest with them and I told them the situation. And by that point, I'd been playing with them for a while. And, um, and I said, is there any way I can get a sub for the one, the second week of rehearsal? And the music director, he was really just like, Oof, that is a huge ask. You know, I would never let anybody get away with that. But, you know, it's up to the artist and I will talk to them and I'll push for it and we'll see what happens. So he, he did. And the artist said, okay, you know, make it work. So they said, the music director said, film everything you do, film all your parts, and let's find the perfect person to do this, uh, to fill in for you for the week. So we started talking about who it was going to be. And I had a friend that I thought, this guy's going to do a great job. And I, I recommended him and the music director said, no, he's not the right guy. He's, you know, he's the artist that he plays with are in a different kind of world. It's just not going to work. Let's try this person or that person. And I was really thought about, I was like, he's the right guy. Like, he's responsible. He's excited. He's going to do all his homework. He's going to come in and they're not even going to notice I'm gone unless they're like, well, it sounds a lot better today. What happened? And I really pushed for him and the resistance was like pretty big, you know, but I really felt like he's the best option, you know, because I'm going to be in big trouble if this doesn't go well. You know, I'm going to show up to a tour where everyone kind of like is not feeling good about things and it's going to be my fault. And um, so I really pushed for this guy. And the first day I sent that text from Japan, I was like, how'd it go to the music director? And like, took a while for him to respond. And then he finally did. He's like, oh, he's great. We love him. Yeah, yeah. So glad we thought of this, you know, like, like it was our idea. You know what I mean? But really, I had to push so hard for him and he nailed it. He nailed it. And I called him because he was, I thought of him and pushed for him because he's a great player, but ultimately he's responsible. I knew he was going to learn all the music. I knew he was going to show up and on, on day one and nail it. And he was excited about it and enthusiastic. And those are the qualities that, you know, will get you hired. Right. Yeah. Um, Nir, can you build on that a little bit and just tell us like some of the stuff you're doing now and you know, tell us, you know, what, what are you, what are you doing like professionally and what are your, some of your goals artistically, like with your own sound and, and uh, sure. what you're working on in your playing? Well, there's this, this whole pandemic thing. I'm not sure if you guys have heard. We have heard of this. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not doing as much as, as I usually am. I've led a, you know, a, a really, um, I've had a really busy last 10 years here, but this year has been more mellow. Um, but I do have my own original project. I put on an album during the pandemic called Two. It's out there and we've been doing a lot of shows in New York and live streams and stuff. And hopefully when this is all over, I'll get to do a tour. 
um, with that. Um, I have a project with Will called Band of Other Brothers. It's me, Will Lee, Keith Carlock, Jeff Babco, and Jeff Coffin from Dave Matthews Band. And we also recorded a new album during the pandemic, which is about to come out. Um, and we have some stuff coming up with that, you know, as much as we can tour. Um, I teach at the new school. Mm -hmm. And I also do a lot of um, like international teaching. I teach at the Siena Jazz Workshop uh, for the last 10 years in Italy. And it seems like that's going to happen this summer. Um, I do have some dates coming up with Blood, Sweat and Tears, which is a band I play in. Mm -hmm. um, ben Platt, who's an amazing artist that I work with, has a new album coming out. Um, so we're hoping to do some stuff with that. Another great artist I work with, Keon Harold, has a lot of stuff coming up. So. We just don't know how much of it we'll actually be able to do at this point. So in the meantime, I'm enjoying, you know, teaching on Zoom and composing and practicing and, you know, uh, waiting out this pandemic, but, you know, not in a way that I'm like, I am, I am very excited to, to play again and go back to what we used to do, but day to day, I'm happy. You know, I'm working on music. I feel fulfilled by it, um, you know, it's uh it's okay it sounds like everything that you've kind of put yourself into and and all the things that you've learned at berkeley in some ways that stuck out to you helped you adapt and you know helped you adapt throughout your life really i mean like that's kind of the and you, you've always seemed really happy and centered so it's nice to hear that you're able to maintain that through all the different work you're doing and through all the um the pandemic. And I guess the last question I have before I have asked Ian something is, um, do you feel near, like, even though you do all these other projects, do you feel like there's like something about your sound that remains consistent, no matter who you're playing with, you know, whether it's a project you're leading or if it's a sideman situation and what are some of those things that kind of define your sound and keep it consistent to you? Absolutely. That's such a good question. Um, I do do a lot of different things, but yeah, at the core, it's always me. Um, and uh, this is funny. You guys might even remember this guitar from the National Guitar Workshop. This is the guitar I've played since I was 13 years old. It's a Mexican Strat. Not too fancy guitar, but it's got um, big strings on it. It's got a set of 13 gauge strings and it sounds really good to me. And I've been playing it ever since. So that's, you know, one thing that kind of comes with me gig to gig. Um, my first hero was Stevie Ray Vaughan, or maybe my, my biggest early hero. He had a way of like playing the guitar very percussively where it had kind of this, that was the inspiration for the heavy strings, by the way. Um, but this kind of snap and this percussion to it. And I think that kind of followed me into my jazz playing. So when I hit a string, it's not usually just that one string, it's kind of that string, but then like a little bit of muted stuff on either side. Um, so that kind of comes with me from gig to gig. And, uh, you know, my approach to sound and, and rhythm and harmony and texture, like even when the content changes, those bigger kind of general things are still the same and they adapt. And one thing about my jazz training is that, you know, and I see this with all the best rock and pop players too and it's like they can sometimes be more jazz than jazz musicians in that every night is a different night with a different audience with a different room with a different energy so even if you're playing the same part the subtleties kind of shift 
and you're open to whatever can happen as, as opposed to being like, it's this way. This is the way it's got to be, you know? So there's that adaptability. And I think that that, I learned that playing jazz, but I see that when I play other styles too, and the best players is that they're adaptive. Even if their part is their part, you know, it shifts depending on maybe the bass player is a little louder tonight. Maybe the audience is a little louder. Maybe the room's a little smaller. So they change. Mm-hmm. Ian, I think um, there's a question that Ian asks every podcast. And in some ways, Nir has answered your question in different ways. But I'm wondering um, if you want to ask it and what might be on your mind. Yeah. So uh, the question that we ask everybody is, what's something that students should be asking at Berkeley that they might not think to ask? Um, I think that they should be, you know, looking to you guys to, to, to keep them on the cutting edge so that when they leave Berkeley, they are in every way kind of just adept to whatever the latest technology is that they can, I mean, I feel like the way things have been going, especially during this pandemic is that People are getting really good with video and video editing and audio recording from home. Um, so I feel like Berkeley's kind of uniquely equipped to give them that. And I think you guys should be giving them that because they they do need that. Um, I think, you know, with the playing as well to, you know, push them to just challenge themselves. And, you know, like we've mentioned a couple times in this interview, like going to the National Guitar Workshop, going to Berkeley, moving to New York, these were all instances when I was in way over my head. And those are the times I grew the most. So I think that like, it would be good if you can, if you can put them in way over their head. Um, Cheryl, I want to throw it back to you as we're kind of coming towards the end. Um, and I see you smiling a lot when as near as uh, answering. So I know you've got some stuff on your mind about what he's talking about. Yeah, I no, I I think it's great. I mean, um, I think everything you're saying is right on. And I know we have so many students, which is why we wanted to have you on that are in this place where they're, you know, maybe getting ready to leave school or, you know, in all their different places at, at, at Berkeley. So to hear your music and hear how you, you know, how you've made this happen, I think is going to be really helpful for them they'll get a lot out of it and just just your thoughts about learning and and that thing you know put yourself in these situations where you're going to grow get out of your comfort zone because that's really that's where it really happens so yeah thanks for sharing all your thoughts on that you know cheryl that's interesting that you said it because cheryl and i were just having this conversation about you know when you're a student allow yourself to be a student you know, and in some ways, like you never stop being a student. Like, I feel like I'm learning um, all the time. Like I'm taking guitar lessons from our colleagues and so is Cheryl. And we're, I'm playing with um, some of my colleagues and friends and learning um, from them. And I, I think sometimes when you're younger, it's hard to imagine that being a student is how you become a colleague. And I think there are some people who are afraid to say I'm out of my comfort zone and they want to just be like, do what they do great. And so everyone's like, hey, man, yeah, you sound great. Or, hey, yeah, you sound great. As opposed to like kind of jumping off the cliff. 
and being out of your comfort zone. And, and those are the moments where the older, more experienced players actually take notice of you. It's not when you're just doing your thing that feels great all the time and sounds the same. It's when you're actually have jumped off the cliff and, and how do you handle yourself and, and how do you make that work? That's where that moment maybe transitions where you become a colleague. I mean, I don't know how that strikes you, but I was thinking about that today when Cheryl and I were talking earlier. I mean, my only addition is just because, you know, like I've only gotten to mention a, like Tronzo and Alon, um, mm -hmm. but I had so many, you know, I studied with so many people at Berkeley and Cheryl's one of them. You know, I studied with Cheryl, I studied with Rick Peckham, I studied with Bruce Saunders, I studied with like just so many people. And um, I was hungry to get all the different perspectives. And, you know, I learned from each one of them um, different, different things. And like, you know, you have so many great people there that offer so, so much. So you know, I would say to the students, they're like, you know, ask questions, track them down <laughs> and ask them questions because they know a lot, you know, and like, like I said, I came to Berkeley knowing nothing, like relatively nothing, you know, well, you, you knew that the C on, on a, could be a flat three and a sharp 11. You knew what the, you knew the functions of things. You had taught yourself quite a bit. I think that's, I'm not sure that's nothing. But I understand what you're saying. Yeah, comparatively nothing yeah. Now, now to then, you know. Yeah. So and and part of the part of the the way I I learned it was just doing it. You know, just throwing myself in and doing it. And then the other half is I just asked you guys a lot of questions. Yeah, that's great. Um, Ian, what what is on your mind here at the end of the? Yeah, I just really love the theme of like you know. Obviously, you seem like somebody who's very organized and very eager to practice and prepare. And that seems like a big part of it, but also keeping this heavy element of like really being engaged in the activity, regardless almost of what happens, because that's, you know, like practice and action sort of go hand in hand and inform each other, right? I think that's really heavy. Yeah. I'm more on the action than the practice and more on the engaged than the organized, but I try, I try. That's great. Yeah. It's a process, right? It's a balance. Yeah. Well, thanks for letting us flip the situation and ask you a bunch of questions. Oh, this was awesome. It's so good to see you guys again. And you know, you said I, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy when I'm with you guys, but. <laughs> well, yeah, we're happy when we're with you. So this is great. Um, so fun. So, Nir, thank you so much for um, hanging with us on Coffee Talk. So we're going to let the whole gang go who's listening, and uh, we're going to hang a little bit more at the end. And, uh, well, thank you, Cheryl. And uh, thank you, Ian. And thank you, Nir Felder. And um, everybody else, cheers to all of you, and we'll be back soon for another Coffee Talk.